For the ones who know safety isn't a catchphrase, it's a culture. And the ones who help make sure everyone makes it home safe. For the safety-minded who watch everyone's backs, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as safety assessments and training to keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We read in the Bible that Jesus came to give us new life. In fact, he called it an abundant life. And his word commands us to have certain really significant attitudes like joy and peace and contentment. And yet, so many believers are confused because instead of experiencing this joyful kind of life, they often find themselves in the pits. Why do we sometimes feel so gloomy when Jesus offers us an abundant life and Paul tells us to rejoice in the Lord always? I have one friend who claims to have never felt depressed since coming to Christ. And based on what I've seen, I think he's telling the truth. At the other extreme, I know true believers who need medical help to keep the clouds of despair from overwhelming them. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Pastor Steve Kreloff is nearing the conclusion of a short series of lessons from Psalms 42 and 43 called The Battle Against Depression. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. I admit that I sometimes feel depressed. There are times when I just want to bail out on everything and be a hermit on a deserted island of my own. But those feelings never seem to last more than a few minutes. Why? Because the Lord always seems to direct my attention away from my troubles and toward my blessings. Sometimes, though, we need to get a little tough on ourselves. Here's Pastor Steve to tell us what that looks like. Many of you are old enough to remember the late humorist, Irma Bombeck, Irma Bombeck. She was a very funny lady, and she wrote a number of books. And amongst a number of these books, she wrote a bestseller whose title asked this question, If life is a bowl of cherries, why am I living in the pits? That was Irma Bombeck's question. Well, without those clever play on words, many people have actually wondered the, the same thing, especially Christians. And the reason that so many Christians have wondered and even been confused over the issue of being in the pits is because we read in the, in the Bible that Jesus came to give us new life. In fact, he called it an abundant life. And his word commands us to have certain really significant attitudes like joy and peace and contentment. And yet, so many believers are confused because instead of experiencing this joyful kind of life, they often find themselves in the pits, feeling down and gloomy and depressed. And so they are confused, they are baffled by why they should be so downcast when they know the Lord personally. They've experienced His His great, His marvelous salvation. Well, for the last few weeks, we've been looking at this issue of depression amongst the people of God. We've been studying now for these several weeks Psalm 42, in which the psalmist very honestly admits his own struggle with depressions and these feelings of despair that swept over him. Several times in the psalm, he speaks of his soul being cast down and being disturbed. If you look at Psalm 42, you look at verse 5, which is the key, he speaks to himself, why are you in despair? 
O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? And then he says the same thing essentially in verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. He also tells us some of the, the marks or what we would call the, the symptoms, the evidences of his depression. He tells us in verse 3, it left him constantly weeping without any appetite for food. He says, my tears have been my food day and night. Feels overwhelmed by his troubling circumstances as if he's drowning in a sea of waves that are just rushing and rushing over him. He says that in verse 7, deep calls to deep. At the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. And even his physical health has been affected by his depression. Now, what exactly his ailment was, he doesn't tell us. But he tells us how it felt in verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. In addition, he reveals that it feels to him as if God has just forsaken him, forgotten him abandoned him, rejected him. Look at verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Now, folks, it's important to understand that what this man has honestly admitted about himself and his depression, he's admitted this for our benefit, not for him, not for his benefit. This is not his therapy. He's done it for us, and we know this to be the case because he tells us in the inscription or the heading above the psalm that this particular psalm is known as a maskil, which is a Hebrew word meaning a teaching or or instruction. And so what this tells us is that the reason that this man wrote this psalm in the first place concerning his own depression was to give us God's divinely inspired instruction on how to deal with our own depression when it hits us. That's the purpose of this psalm. He uses himself as an illustration of one who's downcast. And in doing this, he teaches us that there is a proper way. There is a godly way to handle depression. And that godly way is to fight it, to fight it, to resist it, to aggressively battle it. And the way to do this is by telling yourself the truth God's truth, and forcing yourself to stop listening to all those lies, those errors that go through your head. This is precisely what this man does, as we've already stressed. Key verse in this psalm is verse 5, which he repeats several times. Why are you in despair? Notice he talks to himself. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. And what we discover from this statement is that far from being passive about his depression, far from feeling sorry for himself and all of his troubles and woes, far from accepting his depression as something that's just inevitable and he can't possibly change it, this man turns on himself. He gets tough on himself by exhorting himself to hope in God. When he says hope in God, he means have faith in God, trust in God. In other words, instead of accepting his depression and all the lies that go with it, he just counterattacks these lies by telling himself the truth. And the truth is that his faith needs to be in God and that God will help him. And therefore, he will once again be praising God, not just privately, but go back to his ministry, which he missed so much as part of his depression. He will be praising God on the streets of Jerusalem where he longs to be leading people as they ascend 
to the temple. Now, as I've told you before, this self-exhortation is given a number of times in this just brief span of verses in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. And the fact that he needed to tell himself three times to hope in God in just a short span of verses, it tells us that getting out of depression is a struggle. It's a battle. It's not something that happens instantly. There's no magic, immediate cure. Therefore, you have to persevere in the battle by getting on yourself, constantly reminding yourself of what is true about our God. And then you just have to be adamant that this is what you are going to believe and this is what you are going to apply in your life. Now, folks, this is the way out of depression. You have to give yourself just a firm rebuke, get tough on yourself to stop listening to all of those negative woes and start listening to the truth that God can be trusted. And that's exactly what you are going to do. You are going to trust God, no matter what your circumstances are. Now, for the last two sessions, we have studied all 11 verses of Psalm 42. And we have discovered from these verses, that there are several reasons for this man being so downcast. Being a son of Korah, which the inscription tells us, means that he was a Levite. He was a Levite who was a professional musician in the temple in Jerusalem. He served the Lord in the temple there. And his particular ministry was to lead the Jewish people in worshiping the Lord during their special religious feasts, their festivals, when people would would swell the city of Jerusalem, come outside, from outside of the city, all around Israel, they'd come to Jerusalem. He tells us in verse 4 that his specific task was leading them in the procession up to the temple. Notice verse 4. These things I remember when I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go, this is what he did in the past, I used to go along with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. They would go through the streets of the city of Jerusalem. He would be in the front. He would be singing. They'd be singing behind him. And his job would be to lead them up to the temple area. But what he's telling us is that those were happy days, but they're a thing of the past. And because they're a thing of the past, it's not happening now. That's why he's down. He has a strong longing in his soul to appear before God in the temple once again. That's why, I remind you, he opens the psalm by saying, as the deer pans for the water brook, so my soul pans for you, O God. My soul thirsts for you, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Now, he knows that God is everywhere, but what he's saying is, when shall I come back to the temple, to that very special place where you would meet with your people. That's the longing of my heart. Now, the reason he was away from the temple was that he apparently had been abducted, been taken captive, held as a captive, and far from Jerusalem, because verse 6 says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. So he's, he's away. He's in the northeast part of Israel now. And uh, what makes matters worse is that not only has he been forced to leave Jerusalem, forced to be quite a distance from the city, uh, but those who were his kidnappers were taunting him and making accusations against his God. Verse 10, as a shattering my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I mean, if your God is so great, why are we in charge of you? 
Now, these are the various reasons that he tells us that he was so depressed and so down. He'd been forcibly taken, not only from his home and his familiar surroundings, but from the only life that he had really known. So you have to understand, it's not just that he's lost his job. The man's whole identity has been wrapped up in being a servant of God in Jerusalem, in the temple. Now that's gone, taken from him. Therefore, from his perspective, his whole purpose for living, just gone. And the very God that he had devoted his life to was now being mocked and accused of being weak and powerless to help him. And at this point, understand this, this man has no answer. He has no answer to give to those who taunted him because he just doesn't understand why God hasn't rescued him. He doesn't know why God has allowed all of this trouble into his life. And that's why he feels forsaken by the Lord. Now, in reality, the Lord has certainly not forsaken him, but it feels that way to him. And as we continue our study of battling against depression, we're going to move from Psalm 42 to Psalm 43. It's called Psalm 43, but in actuality, it appears to have been originally written as just one unit, one psalm. And there are several good reasons for believing that this is the case. For one thing, In a number of Hebrew manuscripts, these two Psalms, 42 and 43, are united together as one unit. Secondly, I want you to notice that unlike Psalm 42, there is no heading. There's no inscription above Psalm 43. And that wouldn't be particularly significant in and of itself because there are a number of Psalms without any inscription, except that every Psalm in this second section or second division of the Psalms, which would be Psalm 41 to Psalm 72, with the exception of one of those Psalms, does have an inscription, but this doesn't. Therefore, what this suggests is that Psalm 43 is not to be taken as a new Psalm, but merely a continuation or an extension of Psalm 42. But the most compelling reason for believing that these two Psalms were written originally as one unit is that the very same words that the psalmist uses in Psalm 42 for his remedy to depression used again almost exactly the same wording in Psalm 43. Look at verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, all of this leads us to believe that Psalm 43, then, is a continuation of Psalm 42, because the writer is just continuing to deal with the same subject, which is battling depression. You can easily see this because as Psalm 43 begins, we see the writer following the very same pattern he followed in Psalm 42. He tells us about still one more reason, another reason he was so down and gloomy, and then he states once again the remedy for his depression. That's what he's done all along. Here's a reason why I'm depressed. Here's the remedy to depression. So with this as our background, we want to look once again at the reason, another reason, and remedy for depression from Psalm 43. Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and the unjust Man. Now, here we read something about this man's situation that we have not read before. This is new information. It's definitely, though, one of the causes of his depression. He tells us that he's praying to God to vindicate him 
to plead his case against an ungodly nation, men who he describes as being deceitful and unjust. He says man, but in reality means the men. Maybe there was one ringleader, but that's what he's talking about. Now, what this tells us is several things. First of all, it tells us that he was being falsely accused by his captors. See, to ask God to vindicate him, uh, to plead his cause, it means to ask God to clear his name from the charges leveled against him. Secondly, these false accusations were coming from those, he tells us, who captured him, which he now identifies as men from an ungodly nation. And we don't know what nation, but these were pagan men from some foreign Gentile country. And these men were hostile towards Israel and the God of Israel. That we know. Now, specifically, what they were saying about the psalmist, we're not told, but it apparently was an attack upon his faith in the God of Israel. And I say that because if you look back at Psalm 42 and you look at verses 3 and 10, he tells us this. He's, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? It's basically the same thing is said in verse 10. So you'll see that, that these men had taunted the psalmist about his God, essentially calling the Lord weak and ineffective and unable to rescue him. So it only makes sense that they would also attack him personally for believing in such an impotent God, perhaps mocking his intelligence, maybe calling him a fool or gullible or naive or a simpleton or something like that. But whatever the nature of their attack was, it was false and it bothered him and it contributed very definitely to him being depressed. I think that every true Christian can relate to this, at least to some degree, because every believer knows how it feels to be verbally attacked and slandered for their faith in Christ. Unbelievers take great delight in attacking us for believing in Jesus. They persecute us, not only physically, it's moving more to to that arena in our culture, but they persecute us in our culture by insulting our intelligence for believing such a simple message as the gospel. And they accuse us of being narrow-minded people, of being hypocrites, of being people who are just intolerant of anything that society deems to be moral and acceptable. We're looked upon as just oddballs, out of step with our culture. I mentioned the word simpletons, who believe anything and everything that the Bible says without Questioning it without thinking for ourselves. That's how we are looked upon by many in the world. Now, this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Why? Because our Lord said. He said that this would happen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told his followers that they should expect this kind of treatment from unbelievers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. He said, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our Lord said that we should expect this, so it shouldn't shock us. And again, before his arrest, Jesus warned his disciples of the kind of treatment that they could expect from the world. In John chapter 15, Starting at verse 18, the Lord said, if the world hates you, and the thought here is not if the world hates you, but since the world does hate you. 
So let me read it that way. Since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. We don't have time to go into all of this, but just just to say that Jesus said, don't be surprised by this. You're not like you used to be. You're not like you were when when you lived in the world and you loved the world and the world now turns against you because you're basically a rebuke to the world. You've rejected the world and its standards. So they're coming after you because they can't really come after me anymore. But even though we know that persecution is part of the Christian life, listen, let's be honest, it, it still hurts when it comes. And as one Christian leader put it, he said, it is an unusual person who will not be occasionally depressed by malicious and hurtful treatment. That's exactly how the psalmist is feeling. He's come under attack for his faith, and it it only added to his already gloomy mood, and so he's asking the Lord to vindicate him, to just intervene in the situation and, and clear his name. But even as he prays like this, he's frustrated, and he's confused because, listen closely, up to this point, God has not intervened. The Lord has just let all these terrible things happen to him, including these verbal attacks upon his faith from these evil men. And in verse 2, he honestly tells the Lord exactly how he's feeling. You've got to commend this man for being so transparent and honest. He says in verse 2, For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Folks, this is the cry of one who just doesn't understand what God is doing in his life. And he's disturbed by it. He he acknowledges that the Lord is his strength. The Lord is his refuge, which means that the Lord is the one he looks to 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 defend him. But up to this point, he doesn't see it happening. He doesn't see God defending him at all. And God's apparent silence And inactivity in his life, it just leaves him feelings that the Lord has forsaken him and rejected him. And he just can't understand why he has to continue mourning while his enemies oppress him. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but if you have, then you understand how depressing it can be to believe something about the Lord, something that his word tells you about him, that he's strong in this case, and he's powerful. That's what the Bible teaches, that God is sovereign over everything. And yet, while you know that, to feel as if God, though he's sovereign and powerful, is just not demonstrating that in your life. You don't see it happening. He's not working in your life as far as you can tell because he has not demonstrated his strength and his power by delivering you from your trying circumstance, and that can be very baffling. But when we think this way, and who hasn't at times, we're just not thinking clearly, because we are basing our thoughts, as this man was, on his emotions, on our emotions, and not on what Scripture says. See, Scripture very clearly teaches us that God sends trials into our lives. That life is not always a bowl of cherries. He sends trials into our lives. Scripture very clearly says that. And these trials are sent by God in order to test our faith by affirming and assuring us that we have really been converted, 
we are true believers. One of the ways you know this is by the trial of your faith because you're still trusting God at the end. And he also sends these trials into our lives for the purpose of refining us, purifying us. Another way to put this is to say he's helping us to grow in grace, helping us to become more and more like Christ. Have you heard about the fellow who greeted his friend with the usual, how are you? The friend replied that under the circumstances, he thought he was doing pretty well. And the first man responded, you're a Christian. What are you doing under the circumstances? Well, the idea is a little oversimplified in this story, but then again, there is something to it. When we focus on Jesus and his promises, he will lift us above our circumstances. Thanks for tuning in today to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. To find out more about Verse by Verse, visit our website, versebyverseradio.org, or call Lakeside at 727-441-1714. This is Jerry Peterson. The Apostle James said that when we think about it, we should be glad for the various trials that we encounter in life. Really? Why would I be glad for difficulties? James went on to say that those trials serve to make us spiritually whole and mature. I hope you'll join us for the next verse-by-verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff wraps up our series on battling depression. We'll consider how the trials that sometimes depress us are really for our own good. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.